King Nebuchadnezzar conquered.
Good morning and welcome to our service in the Crescent. Uh, we've had a number of small milestones, or as David Bingham calls them, kilometre stones. We've been able to have some live music this morning and tonight, uh, not for this service, unfortunately, but a sign that we're getting back to normal. Uh, I also find that the uh, lectern has been moved into the centre of the stage. I'm not quite sure of the theological or practical significance of this, but it's a welcome change nonetheless. That is higher than I. Verse 4 says... Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And one of my favorite, uh, I suppose, more modern songs we sing is, Lord, I come before your throne of grace, which brings these things together. So let's stand and sing quietly, Lord, I come before your throne of grace. Thank you, God, our Father, that your Son is the rock that is higher than us, a rock of security, 
stability and elevation from which we can see this world and, and see it rightly through your eyes. Thank you, Father, that you bring all who will come to you under the shadow of your protection, your caring wings. And this morning, we have much to pray to you about. We confess our sins this week and how we've treated other people, how we've treated your name, and how we do fall short of your glory. But yet, Father God, we come to a throne of real grace, a throne of real help and assistance, where we see Jesus, the author and completer of our faith. And Father, many of us are asking this morning for our faith to be renewed, renewed in us, renewed in your people, renewed in this country. A real vibrant faith that desires a closer walk with you, a greater experience of being more holy, a more certain hope in God. And so Father, we ask you for faith. You ask that you help our unbelief and help us, Father, to trust you at these times. We think of those, Father, who have to trust, especially those who are sick and those who are bereaved. We think particularly of Colin Campbell and his family. And we pray, Father, that his surgeries and infections will come to an end and he will be restored. We give you thanks, Father, for the recent good news about Harry and Stephanie. And we pray, Father, for safe travels, ultimately home for them on their last leg of their journey. Keep them safe and secure under those protecting wings. We pray, Father God, for our country, for our politicians and for the civil service, and all those, Father, who are making decisions about us. Give them wisdom. Help the peace to be maintained at this time in this country. And I pray, Father, that you will provide the resources and creativity and ingenuity for us all to help build after COVID and to come back to a normal life. We pray, Father, for those who are uncertain about their businesses and their finances, that, Father, you will provide for them and that you will give them, Father, real assistance in ways that only you can devise. So, Father, as we think about Haggai and Daniel in our services, help us, Father, to see how putting your worship, your presence at the center of our lives through prayer and through walking in obedience is the real key to blessing. We confess, Father, that we haven't been using at times the opportunities to build you into our lives. And so, Father, we pray, instead of looking on the past, that we would look forward to the future and to the blessings that you will give your people when they turn to you and when they pray towards your presence, towards where Jesus Christ is for help and assistance at this time. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to have a short video, uh, mainly for the children, but I always like watching them as well because Daniel is really my favorite Old Testament character. And from a young teenager, he politely but firmly kept his faith and trust in God, even though he didn't have many Jewish friends at school. And like many Christians today, Daniel experienced being taken away from home, his home country, uh, away from his parents, and he learned to live in another part of the world that was very different to his own. And he had to learn how to trust God. And we're going to see that, how he does that in this video that is going to be played. When the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, attacked Jerusalem, 
King Nebuchadnezzar conquered the holy city and took many sacred objects from the temple and took them home with him to add to the treasures kept in the house of the king's false god. In addition to the sacred treasures, the conquering army took many prisoners along with them when they left Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar commanded his chief of staff to bring into his palace young captives who could serve in his court. These young men needed to be strong, healthy, good-looking, and well-educated. To show his favor to these young men, and to keep them well-fed, the king ordered that they receive food and wine each day that was prepared in his royal kitchens. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all of whom were from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Even though Daniel was selected to serve King Nebuchadnezzar, he wouldn't eat the food from the king's kitchens because it was forbidden by God. To refuse the king's goodwill was a bold and potentially dangerous move for Daniel, but the chief of staff liked him. While he was willing to let Daniel eat different food, he worried that this diet would cause Daniel to become unhealthy. He said to Daniel, the king will kill me if you get weak and sick. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and stronger than the other young men who had been eating the king's food. After this, the attendant fed the four young men only vegetables and water. Because the young men's decision honored God's law, the Lord blessed them with wisdom and understanding. Daniel was given the special ability to interpret dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. No one impressed the king as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they were brought into the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. So a lot to learn from this simple but very profound historical story of, of Daniel. And we're very pleased that Danny is going to bring this word to us uh, shortly. This is the beginning of the first of six studies in Daniel on Sunday mornings. And in the evenings, we have a series on the book of Haggai, whose main uh, issue was to get people to rebuild the temple that had lain in ruins and in disrepair. And if you were here in previous Sunday evenings, you'll remember that James McCune was able to link us into the revivals in Second Chronicles to both of these men. 
as was David Earnshaw. So uh, I really look forward to exploring the impact of these Old Testament characters and situations on our lives today. So um, for the young uh, people and children especially, there is in the foyer a table full of coloring in and quiz sheets. I don't know whether you're able to get them. As I'm sure the ushers are uh, directed skillfully to get your kids to the table to pick those up. So be aware of those and they'll be available each Sunday morning. So we'll hand over to Danny and uh, look forward to what you have to say, Danny. Thank you. Well, good morning and welcome to the start of our series on Daniel. The rest of the service this morning is going to be much less interesting than what we have just seen in the video. But let's begin by reading uh, from the book of Daniel and from chapter 1. So chapter 1, and we'll start with the first eight verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And down to verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of king Cyrus. 
So as Gareth has said, this morning we're starting a short series on the first six historical books, uh, or sorry, historical chapters of the book of Daniel. This morning will be more of an introduction rather than a detailed examination of chapter one. But I think we'll see that, uh, that this book that was written so long ago, two and a half thousand years ago or just over, is so relevant to Christians living particularly in the Western world today. But let's first remind ourselves of the historical context of the book of Daniel. Uh, and last Sunday evening, David Earnshaw gave us a, a good start on this. So let's first go back to the last good king of Judah, who was King Josiah. He came to the throne as a boy of only eight years old in about 640 BC, and he reigned for 31 years. This was just before two uh, horrendous, sorry, it was just after two horrendous kings, Manasseh and Ammon, who corrupted the worship of God with idolatry. The temple had been filled with symbols of the religious ideologies of the superpowers of the day. They persecuted and even killed the prophets of God who spoke the word of God to the nation. And even the written word of God had become lost through neglect. The ruling powers of Judah before Josiah had become embarrassed by the exclusive message of their own scriptures, which claimed that all other gods were false gods. The previous kings wanted to be accepted among the League of Nations, and you can't do that if your own scriptures argue that the God, uh, gods and ideologies of your neighbors are all made up. Now, King Josiah had come to know the true God of the scriptures. He wanted to bring Judah back to the truth of their biblical heritage. He had the temple restored and all the old symbols of the out-of-date gods and ideologies were thrown out. In the process, the workers discovered or rediscovered a key part of the Bible which had been written by Moses, which gave God's analysis of Israel's sin and waywardness and God's warning of what would happen to them as a result. Josiah tried to reform the nation, but the problem of idolatry and the nation's lust for idols and their loss of belief in the absolute truth of their scriptures, it went much deeper than even Josiah could reach. And after his death, we have the four last kings of Judah. They all rejected the faith. They all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. First, there was Jehu Ahaz, who lasted only three months. Then there was uh, his older brother, Jehoiakim, who was put on the throne, and he reigned for 11 years. Uh, some of you may remember that he was the king who notoriously sliced up the word of God through Jeremiah as it was being read to him and burned it in a fire. After him came Jehoiakim, his son, who also ruled for only three months before Nebuchadnezzar took him to ba uh, Babylon. And the final king was Zedekiah, whose weak and evil 11-year reign ended when Nebuchadnezzar eventually lost patience with Judah in about 586 BC. And this, as we saw, is when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and Jerusalem itself and took Zedekiah 
and most of the rest of the Jewish population in chains to Babylon. Then came uh, the third and final stage of what is called the exile, when the population uh, was taken by Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon. Before that, there had actually been two earlier groups of exiles who had been taken from Jerusalem as warnings to Judah. And then finally, as we'll hear more tonight, when the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire in about 539 BC, King Cyrus famously proclaimed that the Jewish exiles were free to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. So they returned under Zerubbabel in approximately 538 BC, about roughly 70 years after Daniel had been taken himself. So where does Daniel fit into this timeline? Well, let's go back to King Jehoiakim. Three years into his reign, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem for the first time. He took the best of the next generation of young princes and future leaders and took them back to Babylon. This was partly to rob Judah of the future leadership capability. And among this group was Daniel and his three friends. Daniel seems to have lived in exile in Babylon for around 70 years and probably died there. And the book of Daniel itself stretches across Daniel's entire career in Babylon. Now, we don't know exactly what age Daniel was when he was taken into exile. But since he and his friends uh, were selected for the purpose of being given basically a university education in Babylon, uh, it's generally felt that Daniel was about 17 or 18 when he was taken to Babylon. Now, that gives us some interesting background about his earlier life before he was taken to Babylon. It means that Daniel, for maybe 14 or 15 years, had lived during the reign of the godly king Josiah. For most of Daniel's early life in Jerusalem, uh, the temple had been functioning properly, and the prophet Jeremiah had been free to minister. In fact, Daniel and his friends may have been personally mentored by Jeremiah. And even when Daniel was in Babylon, Jeremiah uh, wrote letters to the exiles to encourage them and to guide them about how they were to live in Babylon. Jeremiah even predicted that they would be there for about 70 years. So actually, from one point of view, Daniel and his friends in Babylon had been rescued from seeing the worst of those evil last years of the kingdom of Judah, when many believers in God were killed and when God's word was being burned. Instead of having to live in an intensely corrupt and fanatical world of Jewish politics, Daniel and his friends suddenly had to adapt to living in a very different world, a very different culture of Babylon. It was a more sophisticated world than they were used to. The science of Babylon and the literature of Babylon was uh, more advanced in some ways than what Daniel and his friends had been used to, and much more multicultural. It was a sophisticated, <clears throat> but it was an idolatrous world. It was certainly a totally different experience for Daniel and his friends, but it wasn't entirely negative. 
In the rest of this short series, we'll be looking at some of the challenges they faced as believers in God living in a very alien culture with different worldviews and different ideologies and religion. It's for this reason that the book of Daniel is becoming increasingly relevant, particularly for believers in the Western world and for us here in Northern Ireland. And let me mention one reason in particular why this book is particularly relevant to us here. While we have not, most of us have not been transported physically into a different culture. Now, I know some of you have. You've come from different parts of the world and have had the shock of culture, such as we call it, of Northern Ireland. Nevertheless, for most of us, we haven't been transported physically into a different culture. But what we find is that a new culture has been transported into Northern Ireland and into the West. The culture many of us were brought up in was a Bible-based culture, just as Daniel and his friends uh, spent their early years in Jerusalem. But that culture is rapidly being swept away and is being replaced by a very different culture. Uh, the modern culture often has little time for religion in general. It is no time, especially for people who claim that their religion is the only true religion. And that claim that Christians make is one reason why the Bible and its inerrancy is coming under increasing attack. And the new society that we're living in has its own moral values, but these are certainly not based on the Bible. Now, in the past, the values Christians stood for were more generally accepted by society, but now they are positively challenged. The foundations of the Christian faith are often not even understood by society. And sometimes Christian, Christianity is positively criticized and rejected and sometimes even mocked. Now, those of us who have lived most of our lives can put up with that. But it's particularly stressful for young people who may in their early years have been brought up in a supportive Christian environment but are suddenly exposed to this very different culture when they go to school or to university. Young people from a Christian background who have maybe no real personal faith will be quickly swept away by the pressures from society to conform to the latest ideologies and trends. And even true young believers have to struggle, I think particularly with this key question, is the message of the Bible, which they have been taught, actually true? Not, is it beneficial? Does it lead to a happier life? But is it actually true? And this is something which those of us who are older never really had to fight for. And when we discuss it in detail in our church teaching program, some older Christians wonder, why is this necessary for them? They always believe that. And they think, oh, this is just academic. But for younger Christians and young adults, it is vital that we address this in our ongoing teaching program. Now, if prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah were alive today and advising us, I think their message to us today would be just like their message to the Jewish people and the Jewish exiles, like Daniel, living in Babylon. Those two prophets in particular 
not only state that the God of the Bible is the only true God, but they give reasons why we can be certain of that and why the gods of our new society and what our society stands for are only human creations. Now, when Daniel and his friends found themselves in Babylon, uh, there were three things in particular they had to decide for themselves. They were away from the eyes, the scrutinizing eyes of their families, and in a sense, they could do whatever they wanted. The first question they had to decide was, is the God they had come to know and worship as teenagers in Jerusalem actually true and uniquely true? Is God real? And were the scriptures they had previously just accepted, were they actually the word of God and utterly reliable when you sat them side by side with the literature of Babylon? Or was their faith just one of many options? Secondly, even if they were convinced that what they believed in was true, the second question for Daniel and his friends was, were they going to obey the scriptures personally? Were Daniel and his friends going to obey the moral, the moral and ethical standards of the Bible? Or were they going to accept the more inclusive standards of Babylon as being right? For example, we read in chapter 1 that Daniel and his friends chose not to corrupt themselves with the king's meat and wine. Because they decided to live under the authority of Scripture, they chose to live on vegetables and to drink only water so that their lives did not become corrupted. Now, would you be prepared to do that? I would struggle with the vegetables, I have to confess. But I've seen many a Christian student over my career at Queen's who's come from home uh, and living on their own now in the city. I've seen many of their lives become corrupted through sharing in the alcoholic lifestyle of their fellow students. They haven't been prepared to do what Daniel and his friends were prepared to do. Daniel had that deep-rooted conviction that living by God's was not only right, but it was more healthy for him and in the end made him more useful to his employers. And the third issue that Daniel and his friends had to get to grips with in Babylon was how could they explain and justify their biblical worldview to others in Babylon without appearing weird and eccentric? Could they function as successful professionals without antagonizing their colleagues at every turn? Or should they just keep their personal life as some a personal faith as something totally private, something totally divorced from their professional lives? And these three issues that Daniel and his friends had to wrestle with are exactly the issues that many Christian teenagers and young adults have to face in our new society. One of the main psychological pressures facing younger Christians today is this. Why do Christians always seem to be against everything that our society likes? Christians seem to be against every popular trend in society. The widely accepted theory of evolution is challenged generally only by Bible-believing Christians. The modern views on gender seem to be challenged most commonly by Bible-believing Christians. Other biblical doctrines 
that used to be accepted like what has sometimes been taught and, and sometimes in a distorted way as hell in the name of the Bible, those doctrines sometimes seem so unreasonable and even downright wrong to our new society today. And the thought sometimes comes into our minds, why do Christians seem so negative? Could we not adapt our worldview to be more acceptable and less controversial? And these are real concerns, real pressures. You should not be ashamed to acknowledge them if they come into your mind. But don't simply acknowledge them. Search for answers and search for what the Bible's answers are and take the Bible seriously in addressing these questions. And this is actually why Babylon is so important in the Bible and why Daniel's experience of Babylon is so relevant. Let me ask you one question. Why did God exile his people, the Jews, to Babylon of all places? I mean, why not to Egypt? Why not to some other of the surrounding civilizations? Why did God wait until Babylon emerged as a superpower briefly and then arranged for the Jews to be exiled to that specific culture. So what's the significance of Babylon, particularly in the Bible? <clears throat> the first time we read of Babylon is in the very early story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. There we're told that the main purpose of the Tower of Babel, which is where Babylon became, was to reach the heavens. <clears throat> now, not physically, of course, <clears throat> But spiritually, it was a man-made attempt to try to get into contact with heavens without uh, having to be subject to God. Man was still in control. It was the first organized system of idolatry. And that is really the key to understanding Babylon. All the fundamental concepts of idolatry can be traced back to Babylon. And this may raise in your mind a big question about God's strategy. I mean, remember that for centuries, the problem that faced the Jews was their constant lust for idols. When they saw the idols of the nations around them, they would rather worship them than worship the true God whom they couldn't see. Israel was always captivated by the fantasies represented by the idols of the nations roundabout. You would have thought that Babylon was the worst place for God to send his people. It was the source of idolatry. And yet, that is what God chose. Seems to me that no human writer would ever have made that up. It just, it seems at first sight so illogical. And yet, it was a brilliant move on God's part. Let me illustrate it from the life of someone who who used to meet with us here and that some of you will know. Did you ever meet the young Indian student, the the girl uh, called Priya? I know uh, Kami knows her well. She met with us here before she returned to India. And I remember once in the cafe, she was sharing the story of how she became a Christian. Priya's father was a very devout Buddhist. He regularly went to the temple to worship the idols there and he brought Priya as a child to the temple to encourage her to learn to worship the idols of the temple. Now one day, 
uh, on one of her visits to the temple complex, Priya got separated from her father and got lost. She was looking everywhere for her father, and she somehow found herself in the temple workshop. There she saw the Buddhist priests repairing some of the idols from the temple which were showing signs of wear and tear or had become damaged or needed the gold covering touched up. She saw the priests working on the idols with their tools, fixing them before putting them back out in the main temple for people to worship. Even as a young child, the implications of what she saw immediately flashed and flooded into Priya's mind. When she found her father, she said excitedly to him, Father, they're not real. I saw them making these idols. They're not gods. You shouldn't be worshipping them. They're not real. And sometimes a child can see with great clarity something which more sophisticated adults refuse to admit. And Babylon was the Old Testament's workshop of idolatry. Babylon was where false gods were created. The Jews had always been captivated by the idols and ideologies which flowed from Babylon, and so God sent them into the workshop. And we read later in the book of Daniel how the Jews saw Nebuchadnezzar cynically creating a new idol as a political tool for manipulating and controlling his own people and their thinking. And when the Jews saw with their own eyes how these trendy new ideas and idols and worldviews were being created and dressed up as idols, just like prayer, they realized that all these idols were utterly false. They were released from their desire uh, and addiction to idolatry. They realized that the only true God cannot possibly be made by human craftsmen. The true God must be the God who made man, not the other way around. And when the Jews returned from Babylon, they had been cured of their lust for idolatry. That's an historical fact. And it was a masterstroke on God's part. It's one of the many details of the Bible which confirmed to me that it was not made up by human authors. Now, we haven't time to go into the details of Daniel chapter 1, as we saw in the little video, but they recount how Daniel and his friends maintained their personal integrity and purity in a way which did not antagonize their supervisors. Now, although at first it may have looked strange to their fellow students and lecturers to see them eating only vegetables and drinking water, in the end, it proved a far superior lifestyle. The fact that they did not compromise their principles just to fit in and to be accepted, that actually had far-reaching implications for their characters and indeed for the running of the world empires, as we'll see in later chapters. So let me finish with just one example of why Daniel's decision in chapter 1 about what he would eat and drink were so important and so valuable. Later in the book, as we'll see, we read that one of the main problems, particularly in administering a huge empire like the Persian Empire, the main problem was corruption in government and in the civil service. 
We read about how Daniel was promoted precisely because he could not be corrupted. In many countries across our world today, corruption at all levels of government and in the administration has been seen to hold countries back and keeps people in poverty. A good ruler who genuinely wants good government in his or her country will have to constantly battle against corruption in the lower ranks. It's something that many missionaries have to deal with as well. What such a ruler desperately needs are senior people who cannot be corrupted. When people withstand temptation in their personal lives, they are developing the strength of character to withstand the temptation to join in the corruption in their profession. So when Daniel and his friends refuse to be corrupted in their personal lives before God, when they obeyed biblical principles they had been brought up with, when they refused to be swayed by the lure of short-term acceptance by their fellow students, when doing all this, they were actually becoming more and more valuable to the king. Babylon may not have liked people who believed and stuck to absolute truth. They may not have liked people who refused to compromise, but Babylon needed people like that. That's why we read that Daniel and his friends ended up in very senior positions in the civil service. Even though their worldview and lifestyle seemed at odds with Babylonian society and values. If we want as Christians to bring benefit to our society today, then we need managers and teachers who do not merely do what is popular. Leaders in business, in the civil service, in government need to be able to take unpopular decisions. Businesses today acknowledge the need for principled, upright management if they are to survive in the long term. And Christians who live in a society which seems hostile to biblical values need uh, and are valued in when they live without compromising their faith, without dropping their trust in the Bible, because in doing so they become ideal candidates to be successful leaders and managers in business, in education, and in government. Now, I don't mean to offend anyone, and this is just my, purely, my, pers- my personal opinion. But when I see someone who, was brought, who lived as an enthusiastic Christian in their younger days, in a sheltered environment, but who, when they come to the, meet society, perhaps at university, they gradually jettison one aspect of their faith after another, I personally wonder about their suitability for being entrusted with senior management responsibilities. If they have dropped their principles in the interest of being accepted and popular among their peers in matters related to faith, then I wonder, can I, could I trust them not to do the same with the principles of uprightness in their profession? A good leader and manager needs to be able to stand against what is merely popular. Good leaders need to take unpopular decisions and to stand by them. Give me somebody like Daniel any day for managing and for governing in our country.
So as we go through the rest of the first six chapters of this book of Daniel, I think we'll see in more detail other ways in which the benefits of Bible-believing followers of God not only preserve Daniel and his friends, but brought real benefit to society and to alien pagan cultures and their leaders. And I pray that God's word will prepare particularly our young people and our young adults for having real impact in our society today. So let's just bow and finish in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so up to date. We thank you for uh, people like Daniel who in the past were used by you not only to stand for the truth but to do so in a way which brought benefit and uh, prosperity to the society in which they lived and worked. Father, I just take a moment to pray, particularly for our young people and young adults here today who uh, are facing similar pressures to Daniel but can be used in similar ways to bring some restoration to our society in days to come. So we pray that your word would have impact on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Danny. I was particularly struck about the story of prayer, how that the stories in the Bible that we believe and trust in are not made up. They're not crafted for convenience or for people to have control of others, but they're actually true. And in terms of the human wisdom that Daniel used to wrestle with, he needed to do some hard work. And whether that was intellectual thinking hard work or whether it was the spiritual hard work of learning to trust in God, um, it's a real important lesson for us all. And if you do want to take these further and to complement your studies um, in Daniel, I can do no better than recommend John Lennox's book, Against the Flu. Um, it has the worst title ever for a very good book, which is the uh, I think the relevance of Daniel in an age of relativism. It's a bit off-putting the title, but it's a very readable book, and he brings together all sorts of insights from the Bible, from his understanding as a scientist and as a philosopher and debater, to actually encourage Christians um, in their walk with God and trusting in God. So, Against the uh, Flu uh, by John Lennox, can't recommend it highly enough. Paul writes his letters to the Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and we know that because of this, we need not to be ashamed when we go to school, to university, or to work tomorrow. And we can sing about how our worth is not in our own wisdom, ideas, or philosophies, but in the cross of Christ that brings to naught all of the foolish ideas that we can construct and instead places the love of God, the character of God, at the center of our hope. My worth is not in what I own.